Hey, thanks for tuning into this episode of the Anesthesia Clerkship Podcast. Uh, my name is Blake Burney. I am a first-year anesthesiology resident at the University of British Columbia. And on today's episode, we're going to discuss neuromuscular blocking agents, uh, which are also known as muscle relaxants, paralytics, and I'm going to be using these terms interchangeably throughout the podcast. Uh, before we started the episode, I actually wanted to give a big shout out to Suzanne George, who is a third-year medical student based out of the University of Calgary. And they emailed in wanting to get involved in the podcast and actually help me edit the script. So uh, big thanks to Suzanne and best of luck with your upcoming CARMS match. So for this episode, we're going to start by briefly explaining a few reasons why we use paralytics. Then we'll introduce the physiology behind the neuromuscular junction and describe two main categories of paralytics. So before we begin, uh, I'd actually like to introduce probably what I would consider like the most important rule when using any neuromuscular blockade, and that's to never give a paralytic to a non-sedated patient. And uh, the reason for this is that these medications do not provide any unconsciousness, analgesia, or amnesia. So as you can imagine how distressing it would be for a patient who's totally aware, uh, totally conscious of everything that's going on, is all of a sudden unable to move or breathe on their own. And uh, this is why when you're in the operating room, you will never see somebody push the paralytic before an agent like propofol. And if you think about this, uh, let's imagine that your IV were to dislodge halfway through uh, pushing your propofol and you hadn't given any paralytic yet. Like there, there's no issue here. Uh, you would have time to get a new IV in and then you'd have time to give the paralytic afterwards and the patient would be unconscious and unaware that this is all going on. Uh, however, on the other hand, if you were to give the paralytic before giving sedation and then you lost the IV before you could give something like propofol, as I mentioned, this patient would be sitting there, totally aware of everything going on, unable to move or breathe, uh, and then experiencing this. And you can imagine that would be a nightmare. So I'm not going to belabor this anymore, but uh, needless to say that you will never give a paralytic uh, before your sedative. Why do we use paralytics? From an anesthesia point of view, paralytics help facilitate airway management and intubation. They relax the laryngeal muscles and provide better visualization of the vocal cords when we're intubating. It is worth noting that you can intubate without neuromuscular blockade. However, uh, the use of paralytics uh, improve our view and facilitate a higher first percentage pass for intubation. Other reasons that you may consider the use of paralytics is from a surgical point of view. Some procedures are actually very difficult, if not like impossible, uh, to perform if a patient isn't paralyzed. So a good example of this is like laparoscopic surgery. Uh, if you've ever been on a rotation and the patient begins contracting uh, while the surgeons are trying to operate, uh, that can really like obstruct their view and uh, can make it extremely difficult for them to perform their task. And uh, they'll be pretty quick to alert the team that uh, the patient needs to be deeper, more relaxation. Other reasons that you may use paralytics, uh, if you were to look in the ICU, uh, you can use uh, paralytics to facilitate ventilating patients. So for patients with like acute respiratory distress syndrome, ARDS, or uh, perhaps ventilator dyssynchrony, so these patients that are quote unquote fighting the ventilator, like bucking. And other things that it can allow us to do is more precisely control their ventilation. So uh, in some clinical scenarios where this may be useful is perhaps you want to reduce somebody who has a lot of intracranial pressure. And we can do this by temporarily hyperventilating the patient, effectively uh, making them hypocapnic, reducing their PaCO2. 
And this um, effectively decreases cerebral blood flow, which then decreases cerebral blood volume, uh, which will then decrease intracranial pressure. This is by no means an exhaustive list, but uh, it provides a few scenarios in which uh, you can realize how helpful these medications are. So now that uh, I've kind of belabored the fact that these are very useful medications, uh, let's go into a little bit of the physiology around this. And paralytics act at the site where the peripheral nerve synapses with the muscle. So this is called the neuromuscular junction. And the neuromuscular junction is effectively made up of the nerve uh, called the presynaptic terminal. There is then a cleft, a little space in between there, and then a postsynaptic portion, which is on the muscle, uh, that has these nicotinic uh, acetylcholine receptors. And within this cleft, um, or the neuromuscular junction, uh, there's an enzyme that you'll find, and it's called acetylcholinesterase. And this breaks down your endogenous acetylcholine. So essentially what happens is uh, you'll have an action potential that comes down through the presynaptic nerve, uh, facilitates the release of acetylcholine into the synapse. The acetylcholine moves across the synapse and binds to the nicotinic receptor on the end plate. And then once that's activated, it allows for an influx of sodium and calcium into the muscle cells. Uh, this generates what's called like the end plate potential. And then once you've kind of hit a threshold, so once uh, enough of these nicotinic receptors have been activated, uh, the potential is reached and then that uh, triggers the adjacent um, sodium channels, which are like voltage gated. And uh, it allows for like a really large influx of sodium across the membrane. And then this causes the cascade that you'll probably remember from your earlier uh, courses in medical school that results in the muscle contraction. Once the acetylcholine uh, is like bound to the receptor, your nicotinic acetylcholine receptors, it's broken down by that acetylcholinesterase enzyme uh, that's found in that cleft. And then these receptors are essentially vacated and it allows for the repolarization of the end plate and then allows it to repair um, for the next contraction. So I apologize, this is a bit of like um, a reductionist overview, and um, I know that I'm going to have some cellular biology counterparts who are going to be listening to this and cringing a little bit, but essentially, if this was a little too confusing, what I really want you to take away from this is acetylcholine comes down, interacts with these acetylcholine nicotine receptors that are found at the junction uh, on the end plate. And then once enough acetylcholine interacts with these receptors, the muscle contracts. Acetylcholinesterase, that enzyme, is what breaks down the acetylcholine, and that's what allows the end plate to repolarize and get prepared for the next contraction. So now that's out of the way, we can look at how we can interrupt this process. And we have two types of paralytics. Uh, we have depolarizing and non-depolarizing agents. Starting with our depolarizing agent, uh, the only clinically used agent uh, that depolarizes the muscle is succinylcholine. And if you were to like Google succinylcholine, uh, it's essentially two acetylcholine molecules that are bound together. And the dosing of succinylcholine is usually uh, 1 to 1.5 milligrams per kilogram, uh, which is given intravenously. And where I practice, at least, uh, it usually comes in 20 milligrams per milliliter concentration. 
So for your typical 70 kilogram patient, you'd give about um, three and a half to five milliliters of succinylcholine. Uh, succinylcholine, or uh, as it's kind of frequently called, uh, sucks. Uh, it's an acetylcholine receptor agonist, meaning that it activates those nicotinic receptors on the muscular end plate. And once a sufficient amount of succinylcholine is present and bound on those uh, acetylcholine receptors on the end plate, it causes depolarization of the muscle. And this is actually seen clinically as fasciculations. And um, you could probably YouTube this or uh, you'll, you'll see it in practice. But essentially what's happening here is the succinylcholine is not metabolized by that acetylcholinesterase um, enzyme. And that allows it to stay bound to those receptors and leaves the muscles in this paralyzed state because when succinylcholine is bound to the receptors, uh, it's preventing repolarization of that muscle. So this state is, is actually um, termed a phase one block. And uh, typically when the succinylcholine is given at that one to one and a half milligram per kilogram dose, uh, paralysis occurs within like 30 to 60 seconds. And under normal circumstances, what ends up happening after that is the succinylcholine diffuses away from the end plate and it's metabolized in the serum and other organs by an enzyme called pseudocholinesterase. And this usually results in like the block wearing off in about four to six minutes. So it's a very quick block. Uh, this makes it really good for short procedures um, or things like rapid sequence induction, uh, which we can talk about in another episode. But uh, effectively, succinylcholine is great for that quick on, quick off paralysis. Uh, you can run into issues with succinylcholine uh, when you're needing like prolonged paralysis. And uh, to achieve that, what you'll end up having to do is like, repeat your succinylcholine boluses, or you might end up using larger boluses. Or historically, um, I say historically, I've just never seen it clinically used, but you, you could use an infusion. However, what can end up happening in these circumstances where you're repeating your boluses, you're using larger amounts of succinylcholine, or you're using infusions, is uh, you can end up exceeding this four milligram per kilogram dose and then uh, result in what's called a phase two block. And uh, what happens with this phase two block is the, the repeated or the prolonged uh, depolarization of this end plate by succinylcholine uh, alters how the acetylcholine receptor uh, responds. And then uh, it all ends up actually kind of mimicking a non-depolarizing, which is the other type of uh, paralytics. Uh, so it ends up resembling a non-depolarizing muscular blockade. However, we cannot reverse this type 2 block reliably. And what that means is uh, you'll end up having a prolonged block where you kind of just have to wait it out and wait for the medication to wear off, um, which isn't necessarily um, an issue, but if this was unrecognized, uh, it could be life-threatening. A common side effect uh, after the administration of succinylcholine uh, is patients will complain uh, when they wake up and emerge uh, of myalgias. Um, I heard one person once uh, describe it as like complaining of feeling like they just ran a marathon. And uh, the current theory is that um, when we're giving the succinylcholine, it's causing unsynchronized contraction of the muscles, which can then result in these myalgias. 
And uh, there's some literature suggesting that uh, by using like a very small dose of a non-depolarizing agent about five minutes beforehand, they'd say maybe 10 to 15% of like your intubating dose um, five minutes before administering uh, the succinylcholine that this may reduce myalgias. Another side effect to be aware of with succinylcholine is that it increases serum potassium by up to 0.5 millimoles per liter. Typically, this isn't an issue uh, when patients have like a normal potassium. However, if we look at populations that this would be contraindicated, uh, we can look at things like massive trauma, uh, individuals with spinal cord injuries, closed head injuries, um, burns and myopathies. Uh, a lot of these um, pathologies will have an increased juvenile acetylcholine receptors, and then that can result in even more uh, release of potassium and uh, result in like hyperkalemia and then the consequences of that. One particular population where we want to avoid using succinylcholine is in those with pseudocholinesterase deficiency. Pseudocholinesterase being that enzyme that breaks down the succinylcholine. Uh, if patients are heterozygous, meaning that they have like only one copy of this altered uh, pseudocholinesterase enzyme, uh, the length of neuromuscular blockade from succinylcholine can be like double to tripled uh, in those patients. Uh, however, if they're homozygous, meaning that they have two altered copies of the gene, it can take like four to eight hours uh, for them to essentially have their neuromuscular blockade wear off. And uh, as I kind of alluded to, this isn't necessarily an issue as long as it's recognized, but uh, if it is unrecognized, it could be life-threatening. Uh, so what you would have to do here is uh, it's essentially a supportive management that you would keep them sedated, mechanically ventilated, and uh, allow time for the succinylcholine um, neuromuscular blockade to wear off. But uh, kind of going back to rule number one there is uh, you would absolutely need to keep these uh, patients like sedated with something like propofol. And uh, finally, the thing that we'll mention here is that uh, sucks is like a very potent trigger uh, for a condition called malignant hyperthermia. So this is a disease that's like very specific to anesthesia and isn't really encountered much outside of our area of practice, but uh, it deserves a whole episode, so we won't go into it too, too much. So kind of for a combination of these reasons, uh, I don't actually see succinylcholine being used that often in practice um, here. It is worth knowing that like it's a great agent for rapid sequence induction. So when you need to intubate really quick, you know, that 30 to 60 second onset uh, is phenomenal. Um, however, it, it has these cons that we just talked about here. And on the other spectrum, uh, we have the non-depolarizing agents. There's a lot more of these on the market, and they kind of differ as per their onset, their duration of action. Uh, however, the agents that I've seen used the most in practice, uh, especially in the OR, is rocuronium. And uh, in the ICU, I've seen cisatricurium used uh, through infusions, uh, but that's kind of outside of the scope of this for these non-depolarizing agents, they are essentially competitive antagonists at the acetylcholine receptor. So essentially they prevent uh, endogenous acetylcholine from binding and activating those nicotinic receptors on the end plate. Similar to succinylcholine, uh, rocuronium is not metabolized by acetylcholinesterase and 
what ends up happening is the the rock uranium uh, kind of competes for antagonism at those sites and then slowly diffuses away from the end plates unadulterated. Uh, however, rock uranium is not metabolized. Um, well, it's insignificantly metabolized, uh, and it ends up redistributing and being excreted primarily by the biliary system. And what this means is that you don't run into those issues um, in individuals with pseudocholinesterase deficiency. Uh, so you won't get those prolonged blocks because it's not metabolized by pseudocholinesterase. So this is kind of one of the pros of using a non-depolarizing agent. Another pro to using non-depolarizing agents is because it's uh, essentially competing to antagonize those nicotinic receptors. They can be outcompeted. And how would we do that, uh, if we kind of think about it, is we would want to increase our endogenous um, levels or concentration of acetylcholine in those synaptic clefts so that that could outcompete the rock uranium. And how we do this is through acetylcholinesterase inhibitors. So we're inhibiting the acetylcholinesterase, which is breaking down the endogenous acetylcholine, thereby kind of increasing those levels in the clefts and then allowing our endogenous acetylcholine to outcompete the rock uranium or our non-depolarizing agent and essentially uh, kind of terminating the block in that sense. And uh, clinically, I've only really seen neostigmine used uh, as your uh, acetylcholinesterase inhibitor. However, uh, historically, there's been other options and this is like, a, it's, it's a really long topic and uh, it deserves its own episode. So what we'll end up doing is we'll, we'll do an episode on neuromuscular monitoring and then uh, reversal where we can talk about neostigmine and why we pair it with uh, an anticholinergic like glycopyrrolate. And we can also talk about Sugamidex, which is kind of the new kid on the block there. And so kind of depending on the source you read or the attending you talk to, uh, your standard dosing for rock uranium is 0.6 milligrams per kilogram uh, up to 0.8 uh, milligrams per kilogram intravenously, and that's kind of in your elective surgery population. Uh, however, uh, you can increase this to like 1.2 uh, milligrams per kilogram, and that'll uh, facilitate a more rapid onset. Where I practice, again, uh, the rock uranium comes um, in vials of 10 milligrams per milliliter. So your standard dose for like a 70 kilogram patient is going to be approximately 4 milliliters, uh, so 40 milligrams. And then uh, it's kind of worth noting that like uh, that higher dose, that 1.2 milligrams per kilogram, that again is like what we would call our RSI dose or a rapid sequence induction dose. And uh the textbooks and kind of depending where you are uh, will define that as anywhere from 1 to 1.2 milligrams per kilogram and at the concentration of like 1 to 1.2 milligrams per kilogram uh, the onset approaches that of succinylcholine it's not quite as quick but it, it's pretty quick and it approaches uh, kind of the speed at which you'll get neuromuscular blockade and provide you with intubating conditions in the eMERGE, uh, so in like the ED, uh, I've commonly seen like a milligram per kilogram used. Uh, in the ICU, I typically see them kind of like drop 100 of rock is what you'll hear. Um, and then in the OR, uh, depending on your attending, usually they use that 1.2 uh, milligrams per kilogram dosing. So your dosing of rock uranium will kind of vary depending on where you're practicing. Uh, for your standard 0.6 to 0.8 milligrams per kilogram, 
that's going to yield paralysis in about 90 seconds typically and that'll last for like 35 to 75 minutes so uh, that just kind of highlights how much longer the block lasts with rock uranium compared to your succinylcholine and uh, it's worth noting um, that you know 35 to 75 minutes is, is a pretty large range there and the really uh, the only way to kind of confirm your depth of blockade is through uh, neuromuscular monitoring which i said we'll do another episode on but uh, you're going to be using a twitch monitor and looking at your train of four and train of four ratio uh, to essentially make sure that that's above 0.9 which compares the first twitch to the fourth twitch uh, which would essentially be no fade as they would call it but uh, we'll go through another episode on that so uh, a lot of information there. Uh, let's quickly just kind of summarize. Uh, we have two types of paralytics, non-depolarizing like rock uranium, and then we have our depolarizing agent succinylcholine. Both of these uh, act at the nicotinic acetylcholine receptors that are found on the neuromuscular end plate uh, on the muscle, and um, they essentially prevent muscle contraction providing paralysis. Uh, succinylcholine actually depolarizes the muscle and prevents repolarization, whereas rock or rock uranium um, inhibits uh, acetylcholine from binding, uh, therefore uh, preventing activation of the receptor. You don't want to use succinylcholine in a patient with pseudocholinesterase deficiency uh, or a family history of malignant hyperthermia, and uh, rock uranium is safe in those individuals. That wraps up this episode. Uh, once again, just want to give a big thanks to Suzanne George for helping out with the episode. And uh, as always, if you have any feedback or comments for the episode, uh, please feel free to reach out via email. Uh, the email address is anesthesiaclerkship at gmail.com. And I'll leave that as long with, uh, along with the references in the show notes. And uh, thanks for listening. And uh, until next time, best of luck on your rotation.